1: Flashes it away through the covers for four, and England have won the match. Welcome to an unusual episode of the Analyst Inside Cricket podcast. This is me, Simon Hughes, and I'm speaking to you from Corfu, just off the Greek mainland. It's September the 23rd, and I'm watching cricket. Cricket in Corfu, which has been played now for incredibly 200 years. So the first match in Corfu town in 1823, amazing. Obviously, uh, cricket in Corfu was exported by the British, by holiday makers and probably the military originally, but they've got seven teams here, actually. And uh, I'm watching the Corfu cricket team, a sort of mixture of the seven club sides, dressed in blue playing against the Authors 11 because we're in the middle of the Corfu Literary Festival which is staged every year and attracts a, a lot of very prominent authors who are also cricket lovers so I'm watching the Authors 11 and that includes Ed Smith who's at Long Off just in front of me here and also Adam Rutherford, the the well-known scientist, Professor Adam Rutherford uh, of Inside Science fame, and also his partnership with Dr. Hannah Fry as well, a famous geneticist. Uh, We've also got on the field Peter Frankopan, who is the author of the incredibly successful book The Silk Roads. Uh, He's Professor of Global History at Oxford University. A lot of very high-profile academics here, actually, who, of course, also love cricket, and uh, so they mix uh, a few days in Greece with cricket and also talking about their latest books or their latest views on various world affairs. It's actually a rather lovely setting. Ed Smith's here. I, Ed, I, you know, I know this sounds a bizarre thing to say, but this reminds me of Cape Town, Newlands, <laughs> doesn't it? That yes. Table Mountain in the back there, which of course is the, the, uh, the north of Corfu Island, uh, our hotel just over to the right. What a wonderful setting, isn't it?
2: Unexpected, I should imagine, for you. Unexpected and just shows the craziness and the charm of the game we love, isn't it? Here we are in Corfu, which I had no idea there was cricket in Corfu. Still less of a clue that it was 200 years long-standing tradition here. And here are a bunch of authors, cricket-crazy English folk, playing against the Corfu team, many of whom have played for Greece, and it's it's amazing.
1: This is Nancy, actually, bowling, who doesn't bowl that much nowadays. That's my daughter who uh, prefers to, to bat, actually. So, so I, were you actually not familiar
2: with the idea of Corfu and cricket? Well, I, only when I was sort of asked to be part of this literary festival. We're, we're here for two reasons, the, for the Corfu Literary Festival, and there's also this game between the authors and, and Corfu, is part of their celebration of 200 years here. And it was only then that I sort of twigged. And obviously Corfu has, a, uh, has had many influences as an island, including British influence, Venetian um, period, uh, and obviously, more latterly, we think of it as you know part of Greece. But somehow, cricket sort of survived in that mix. And as we can see from the the passion of the players and the love for the game, that it's a it's a strong and deep tradition here.
1: And what what tell us what you're doing at the moment? Because obviously, you're not now uh, chairman of electors and so on. I mean, you're out of the cricket uh, fold in, in a sense. But. You're you're doing your uh, Institute of Sporting Humanities at Loughborough University, the London version. How much of that
2: uh, of your time does that take up? Most of it. So the the two sort of parts of my life now are academia with the Institute of Sports Humanities you mentioned. We we just partnering with Loughborough London. We have our first intake of um, master students in that partnership starting next week. So we're super excited about them studying the MA Leadership in Sport, um, which we've been running. For three years previous to that with the University of Buckingham, now with, with Loughborough, London. And then, I suppose the second main part of life for me is, is writing books. And when I'm writing a book, that becomes a very central focus. And then I have obviously fallow periods where I'm not. As I was chatting about last night in the event we did at the Literary Festival. Since having kids, those gaps between books have certainly stretched out quite a lot. But I had a book out... Um, Last autumn, which which you mentioned on your podcast with Simon Mann, called "Making Decisions," actually came out in paperback this spring, spring twenty three. But no books at the moment, sort of being written, so the focus is very much on our students at the institute and building the partnership with with Loughborough.
1: And your book, "Making Decisions," it's it's I suppose largely about cricket, but it delves into other sports because you like making reference to other sports, like American sports, for instance, in the in the selectorial processes. Sure.
2: And I think sometimes, hopefully, you know, every reader will, will have different bits that they respond to. Some people will read it from a, a very cricketing perspective and they might wish it was more about cricket. Other people might only have a sort of passing interest in cricket and interested it more from the perspective of ideas or from a business or from other sports. I think my view, as the... The three years as Selector went on, I came to be very interested in decision making more generally. How do you approach decisions? What process or frameworks might you use to try and help you to make better decisions? You're always gonna get some wrong, a decent number wrong, but obviously your job is to try and get more right than the next alternative. And I suppose, so I, I tried in the book to give the cricket reader what they would were looking for, which is hopefully an insight into how we approach things for those three years, which were fascinating th- to live through. And also to draw in some people who, you know, it'd be a difficult book to to understand if you, you'd never heard of cricket. But I think if you were aware of it without being a, a crazy fan, then the ideas I hope sort of transfer. You know, a lot of. That's me. That's,
1: me. That's uh, Ed just having to dip out of the interview for a sec to a field uh, a lofted shot towards long off. It's quite a bumpy outfield, but he uh, fielded it. My
2: teeth. <laughs> so, um, they're, still, yeah. they're still in place. So, so you know, one of the things I felt was a very um, useful frame of reference when I was involved with selection was how people who are making decisions in investment think about it. Because they're also weighing up risks um, and also thinking about uncertainty. There are some things you, you can maybe imagine what the outcomes might be, and there are also some circumstances that you can't imagine, and you will trying to be robust and anti-fragile. Against those circumstances too. So, where I came to was that although there were scientific strands of selection, if you could have enough data and that conditions were relatively stable, in some circumstances, you you might gain an edge an edge through algorithms and through quite quantitative scientific work. More generally, all added up together, I think it's more of an art involving. Judgement, rather than a science which can be, quote, you know, optimised or perfected. So that was the sort of journey I went on. And the other thing was that when I was selector, there was more and more awareness that, which became sort of accidentally topical, that AI was becoming a bigger agent in human life. So I think over the course of those three years and thinking about where your value lies, it's actually where you maybe go against, or... Me again. Uh, Fortunately the ball was intercepted by a Hughes, I think, so we're... we're, He's got quite a good arm, my son, yeah. Carry on. So I think I ended up reasonably optimistic that human beings can still have a significant and useful impact, but it's often when they diverge from what the machine might tell us is optimal. In other words, it's no good just to aggregate conventional wisdom or to cede control and authority to algorithms and AI. You have to actually say, in my opinion, there are occasions when we're actually going to do something which may look contrarian or unusual. Well, or surprising. and
1: I'll pi- I mean, I'll pick up on that because, of course, uh, England have been faced with the same predicament which you had when you were in charge of selectors <laughs> before the 2019 World Cup now we're just a couple of weeks before the 2023 World Cup and England have replaced Jason Roy with yeah. with the uh, Harry Brook in the same way as you brought in Jofra Archer at the last moment yeah. having had very little experience sure. do you recognize the the parallels there well i,
2: I do and uh, first thing is i i have a you know very uh, concerns are the wrong works you know it, i think and sympathy is the wrong word too, but understanding of how hard that decision is, because there are certainly more good 50 over players who are worthy of a place in a World Cup squad than there are room and spots available. If there are 15 places in the squad, you know, England could pick 25 very easily. Um, And in the end, they were sort of looking at that, you know, 17 into 15, which was a similar situation to we faced. It's very hard. I also think Someone like Harry Brook is clearly an exceptional, you know, remarkable talent, and you you want access to those you know, X-factor players. Um, in the case of 2019, that one of the complexities with the Jofra Archer situation, as you mentioned, was how little 50-over cricket he'd played. Where we were fortunate with Archer, well, first of all, you can see he's exceptional. So there's the <laughs> the the yeah, the eye alone can can confirm he's an exceptional talent. Secondly, he'd played a lot of high pressure mm-hmm. yeah. 2020 franchise cricket around the world and obviously most notably in the IPL, where he was one of the best you know performers in the IPL. Another good bit of fielding by Hughes. Um, and so then the, one of the questions you're weighing up is how do you weigh experience in a format versus experience under the big sp- on the big stage on the spotlight, under the spotlight. Mm. and we felt that that was that outweighed if mm. you like Jofra Archer's ability to bowl clutch situations in front of you know hundreds of millions of people in the IPL that's a more important piece of information than someone having played many many 50 over games and I think you know History shows that was that was probably so. True. With
1: Brook, I mean, in fact, there is less body of evidence to, for him playing in big, high-profile games, isn't there? He hasn't played much. I suppose he's played Pakistan Super League, but he hasn't played much IPL. Or the IPL he's played was had mixed experiences. Yes. But you can see the logic of what they did, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, and Jason Roy. I guess you also look at that and say, well, although he's been a, a fantastic sort of fire starter for England for yeah. seven, eight years, you could see that slight decline.
2: Well, it's difficult, I and mean, there are two parts to that. But also, has had incredible success in test cricket. Not the same format, but again, it, sometimes... It's mean, proof of a handling proof of some, Exactly, proof yeah. of handling But In actual fact, you'd probably say starting test cricket maybe brings the most about amount of pressure of all, of all the formats particularly in home series and all the time people like you Simon have in the truck to, to analyze <laughs> techniques and i remember me being picked apart and quite rightly so but but uh, in in terms probably of probably that wasn't me no was but probably one of, you or one of your mates Sherry. but i think with 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 jason i think you raise a good point i think jason not only perf- has not only performed very well for england I think he has also embodied that confident mantra. He's very alpha. He has great presence at the crease. He, you know, almost never, you know, takes a long time to get going, and you know, that's been a big. He has been a big part of the. the the great white ball revolution, which I think Andrew Strauss was a central or the central architect with Owen Morgan beginning in 2015 and Trevor Bayliss and Paul Farbrace and all these people have, have played a significant role in it. But Jason's character, as well as his daring and skill, have been a big part of that. So England will not have sort of turned away from that lightly and, and nor should they have done.
1: What What's your cricket now? Um, I mean, is this first, no, second, the, the, third game of yeah, the season? Yeah, exactly
2: that kind of thing. I played... Um, I played I was very lucky that earlier this summer there was a twenty twenty game that the authors played in Kent and my son who was nine at that time and I both played in that and it was our our first ever sort of game together and the authors made him feel super welcome so I'm very grateful for that happy first experience on the cricket pitch um with with the next generation and I probably play one or two games a year um mm. and it's funny I' you know i'm I'm Fifteen years retired now from cricket, and I remember the year after I stopped playing. So I was what 30 when I stopped, and I was asked to play in a fun sort of social game, and I wasn't going to play on the sort of for all the usual reasons. You know, why would you? And and my wife Rebecca said, "Well, what is it that we're doing that's so important on that Sunday that we wouldn't go and see some friends and you know reconnect with something which has been such a big part of our lives?" And actually. You know, it's, I, don't, I can't say I go to bed at night thinking about cricket anymore, but it is always a reminder that this has been part of the fabric of all of our lives, and I know you feel the same way. You know, you've played for a long time, you've commentated and written and studied it, and it's nice to reconnect. And in yeah, cricket is endlessly surprising, and here we are, you know, two former Middlesex players from ages ago, standing on the outfield, looking at a a mountain in Corfu, still thinking about, you know, a game that's entranced us and enthralled us. And I suppose I don't ever want that to stop. (laughs)
1: Well, that, of course, was the former Kent, Middlesex and England batsman and chairman of selectors, Ed Smith. And after the break, as the authors, 11, are in pursuit of 193 in their 20 overs by the Corfu team, we're going to hear from the eminent scientist Adam Rutherford about the ICEC report in cricket. And he, of course, is the author, amongst many books, of a book called How to Talk to a Racist, And we're also going to hear from the renowned historian Peter Frankopan about his thoughts on climate change and cricket. so, and as I said, another of the players in this Authors eleven is Adam Rutherford, uh, of great science and genetics fame. And, uh, Adam,
0: do you meet many other scientists playing cricket, actually? Uh, I think I'm the only one in the Authors. There's lots of historians um, and there's lots of sports writers, but I believe I'm the only scientist. This season, we were going to play the Oxford biochemist, but it was rained off. I think that's the only proper scientific fixture that, that we had we had lined up.
1: Obviously your expertise is in human evolution and genetics and so on. I guess cricket in a way, has it fascinated you as much as because of its its, it's brilliance as a sport, but also the fact that it does seem to appeal to a very diverse range of races? I mean, it seems that there's something in the game of almost any race that... Um, and you see that mix here today. We're in Corfu and we can see people of uh, Asian origin and probably um, African origin and all sorts of other destinations. Is yep. that something that's always interested you about the game?
0: Oh, f- fundamentally, yes. So my, my next book, which I've only just started writing, so it's two years away, is going to be about sport and, and genetics and, and science. Um, so I'm really only beginning to think about it. But, but in, in, the, in the, the pitch document, which I've finished... Um, I described cricket as being what, what I think is one of the high points in human, human evolution. I, I don't mean this as a trivial thing to say, I think it reflects so many aspects uh, of what humans are capable of. And the fact that we've extracted ourselves from having to do things that we, 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 we have to do to survive, that's a, a big part of human evolution. And we've replaced it with things that we want to do. Like, whoa, good shot. That is he going to go? Actually. Oh, sure, Alex!
1: That's the director of um, the Corfu uh, Literary Festival's sort of Authors 11. Uh, smack one straight into the, the long bushes over Long On. And, and actually, you know, just to interrupt your, your conversation, the bowler here looks exactly like Murali the way he's bowling. He does. He's got a slightly bent arm. He does have a slight bend, foot, doesn't he? He's about five foot two inches tall, <laughs> and he bowls off spin. And he looks quite uh, quite mysterious, although... He didn't seem Alex didn't seem to have too much trouble with that delivery, did he?
0: We do take the mick out of um, Alex Preston quite a lot because uh, a bunch of us went down to the to the, the Newbury shop last year to buy some kits and I had a very lovely time and I, I got a bat and some keeper's kit because I, I keep wicket for the team. But um, Alex came back with black pads and black gloves and a bat which has no shoulders on it. So he better score some runs because otherwise he looks like a real divot. <laughs> Anyway, so, I, I write a lot about the history of science, which means that you're writing about the history of European expansion and colonialism. And, and, and the, the beauty of cricket in the 21st century as we're beginning to, especially now, just after the ICC report, we're beginning to deal with issues of race and racism in, in, the game, in this game that we love and that we've dedicated our lives to. I, you see, the, you, you see the, the, the history of empire. You see 400 years' worth of colonial expansion, which is tied to the field of genetics and biology, and all the things that I do. And hopefully we are beginning to see it in a, in a positive way, that it is a truly international sport. And the fact that the British exported it into the then colonies in the 19th and 20th century, that's part of our history. But as you say, look at it now, we're in Greece, playing against a team of Greeks, many of whom are of South Asian descent and, and many other nationalities, and I think it's beautiful.
1: Do you think actually, you mentioned the ISEC report there, do you think in a way one of the reasons that's caused such a great big issue for the game is because of its racial complexity as a, t- as a sport?
0: Uh, yes, I, I do, and there are still some interesting questions that have emerged out of it. I thought the report was pretty good. I was anxious that it was going to look like some of the other reports into race in Britain, such as the Sewell report, which came out I think a year before, a couple of years before it, which said that structural racism didn't exist in the UK and it was it was a nonsense. Um, I thought it. Oh, he's got away with that, Ed Smith. He's got my bat. I thought the report was very good because it was very honest and it, it pointed out something which is really important in dealing with biases in society that were reflected in, in, in the game. And that is that if you isolate race from other issues such as poverty, socioeconomic status, misogyny, all of those things are in the report as well. You, you have to look at the, over, the overarching um, structures. In order to deal with them, and I, I feel that you know we're on the path. We, we, we're getting better at this. We, our team, the English team, is has been has well, been more diverse in the past. That's a, that's a lovely shot by Ed Smith. Mm. Um, a
1: Beautiful crest drive past mid off. That's the bat that's doing it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so you're you're a club cricketer, obviously, as well as as being a, a, a renowned scientist. Is your antennae very alert to sort of elements of racism in cricket when you're playing?
0: Yeah, I don't see it so much when I'm playing, um, but I'm very alert to it when I'm watching. Um, an example which I wrote about a few years ago was just the, the, the mention of the fact that Jofra Archer was putting a jumper on on a cold day when other players on the, on the pitch were also wearing jumpers. And, and I suppose it, you know that feels like a very trivial thing, but when you're someone like me who you know, runs the risk of being a, a hammer and seeing everything as a nail, the history of black people being regarded as either too hot or too cold <laughs> is part of the history of, of scientific racism. And I thought it was striking that with several players on the pitch wearing jumpers, it was noteworthy that the commentator such that the commentator would point out that Joff was putting a jumper on. And it's very subtle things like that, that you get tuned into. The reason I like to mention that is because I think the way we change these things is... We've done it again. I think when you start pointing these things out, then you can't unhear them. So next time someone's listening to TMS or whatever or watching it on the telly, and they hear that. They, they might think, ah, oh, that's interesting. You know, they, they, there is a, a reason why someone thought that was noteworthy. Um, you, you know, I, I, I've got no pretenses or, or that, that, you know, understanding science or understanding the history of scientific racism is going to fix racism. But I think that once you alert people, to the historical context of why we think certain things about race and about stereotypes and about to do with sports. Oh. He's done it again. He's going six after six. But yeah, point, pointing it out. Actually, people begin to notice that. That um, you know, is that stereotype true? If I, the, the, when I when I was a teenager. And I sort of I became teenagery and began to lose interest in doing any anything other than being a teenager. It was it was the team of Curtly Ambrose and Courtney Walsh that kept me going with cricket. But that, that I was watching those guys in nineteen ninety and just thinking, this is amazing. You know, this 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 is why I'm going to continue loving cricket. And you know, many of people listening to this will be thinking, there's two of the most aggressive terrifying bowlers Mm. in the history of the game um and they may be also associating that with the fact that they're black men and that's the problem right that's the problem there we we associate that stereotype with hundreds of years of embedded baked in cultural stereotypes and norms that their aggression and their brilliance as bowlers was nothing to do with them being black it was to do with them being aggressive tall you know, phenomenal mm. pacemen, and their their ethnicity is is and the the biological underpinnings of their ethnicity is totally irrelevant. But I bet a lot of people would be thinking
1: oh, it's because they're black. You know, it's funny, but in the 1980s, which was my sort of era of playing, there was a lot of black fast bowlers in county cricket, and they were they were feared. They were rightly feared, and you know, the bouncer was something that everybody was was very nervous apprehensive unless you are Robin Smith or Graham Gooch who could handle it mm. most people were pretty nervous and apprehensive about it but I went to the Caribbean and I watched their games the island games, you know Barbados against Guyana or Antigua or whatever and you'd have two or three very fast bowlers on either side and when they bowled a bouncer everybody cheered because mm. it was regarded as a as a bit of fun really a bouncer was okay. it was a macho demonstration by the bowler look how fast I am how high I can get it to bounce up but the batsman regarded it as a challenge as well Mm -hmm. as a macho challenge and to have a big swish at it and you know occasionally get a six and occasionally they'd miss it or something but it was regarded as a sort of I suppose a rite of passage, but a, but a part of the game which was actually, uh, I don't know, kind of exploring their exuberance and, and their power and strength and athleticism. Whereas in England, those similar deliveries were feared and mm-hmm. and kind of almost actually castigated.
0: Do you think... That, so that's that's fascinating. Didn't know that. Uh, is it, do, you, do you think that that is to do... Is that a part of the legacy of professionals, the, the sort of... You know, the culture of, of of batters, is that was it regarded as sort of ungentlemanly. Yes,
1: though? yeah, of course. No, yeah. It was, and, and, and in, a, in a funny sort of way, it was quite a clever tactic because those bouncers were very hard to score off, so even if they didn't go over your head, uh, they were sort of chest high, even neck high, and it restricted your area of scoring. It was a bit like leg theory and body line in the 1930s, sure. but it, it had a, an effect of, firstly threatening your torso but also making it hard to score so actually it had a double double effect and I think at times as we, we, we're looking at sort of more MCC style of, of cricket with Ed Smith aren't we sort of caressing it back with a square for four yes. um, but but <laughs> it's it, very it, elegant I, I suppose it, it was a cultural clash that and you could see why you know the West Indies loved it the West Indians loved it but in England we actually tried to outlaw it <laughs>
0: Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I loved it. I mean, I just loved the visceral nature of it. That, that it was just, well, you know, like I said, as a 15 year old, I was like. I'll bring it on!
1: And, and are you just just to finish? I mean, are you optimistic about the future of cricket from a you know all these kind of issues that, that crop up in the game? I mean, it's one of those games that seems to always have some crisis going on. At the moment, there is one sort of in English cricket with the the kind of unintentional or intentional bias, racial bias, etc. I mean, do you do you feel confident the game can sort out its problems and? and kind of
0: move forward? I hope so, I think the impetus is there. I, like I said, the ICC report I thought was very good, you know, sterling work, and I was fearful that it wouldn't be, so that was, that was pleasing. Um, I, the, the week that it came out, I was lucky enough to be invited into, in, into the pavilion at Lord's by Claire Taylor, um, who'd read some of my work, and it was you know, an extreme honour. Now, of course, Lords is a wonderful, special place and the home of cricket. I'm a member at the Oval, in, in, in fact, because I live in South London. Um, and it was the first time I'd seen I'd been in the members' area, and I'm I'm I've got my personality is a little bit Groucho Club, right? That I oh, he's done it again. Is that a six? No, four. Um, I when I as soon as I was in that space. I felt very uncomfortable. This is this is a, a lot of... Um, a certain demographic and a certain type of man. Um, and I, I don't see a great deal of progress being made in that boys' club. And I, I can see that unless people keep pushing it, at this, unless we keep talking about it and, and follow up on the... I can't remember how many recommendations were in the ICC, it was some crazy number. But as long as we keep pushing at that, the game will be better and it'll be better for everyone because, you know, why would you not want more people to play this game? I was, I was looking at the stats for sports in general for, for my new book and cricket is the... Oh, good catch. Unlucky prayers. Cricket should be for everyone. You know, it's the second most popular sport on earth. I think the numbers are something like 2.5 billion people either play or watch cricket on a regular basis. That's a, you know, that's that's more than a quarter of the world's population. And it, we, there are 5.5 million people from India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Pakistan, and in in England, I mean, whose origins are from those those countries. And we. That is a huge pool of talent that currently, for complex reasons, is not being tapped into. Um, and that's a sort of professional level, anyway. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, it's a, it is a huge structural problem that we have to look at really, really carefully. But we we have to do the work, and you only fix these things by doing the work. So as long as there are as long as our leaders, you know, in the ECB and 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 at the big clubs are are willing to take this seriously, then it should be cricket for all. The high point of human evolution, it is the game for everyone.
1: There's a bit of controversy at the end of this game with uh, four to win off the last three balls. A Hughes, a Billy Hughes, has hit one to deep square leg and it's picked up by the fielder who I then probably kicked it over the ropes. And uh, there's a little bit of controversy here. And there's a lot of pointing going on with um, Billy, who's that's my son, actually, saying that he, he knocked it over the f- ropes for four. And the umpire, well, it's player umpires saying uh, it's, he's not sure. So he's given Billy run out. I'm, I'm with Peter Frankopan, whose son also played in this match, uh, and it ended well for you, the authors. You actually finally won. Is that, is that a rare occurrence, actually, beating Corfu? I think we're not, not,
3: not great tourists, I mean, on the cricket pitch, but what's great is to come out here and, and talk about history or books or what we're writing about and, and then to get some cheeky claims of cricket in. It's not easy playing in 35 degree heat or whatever it was. So I do wonder how professional cricketers, you know, when it's hot and there's a lot resting on it. Um, so we had a little taste of that today. Small little crowd. But yeah, we haven't, we haven't won often here. So it's a pleasure. Actually, you, you asked a
1: question last night at our event about how uh, climate change could affect cricket. What, I mean, what, what do you think... That there are things that cricket could do?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think the, I mean, it's not my place to say how the authorities do things, but you know, it looks to me that, um, well, first of all, cricket is, is known to be the sport most at risk of climate change. As you know, you can cover stadiums, there are ways in which you can invest that makes top level sport safer, but, um, Five test plane countries are highly exposed to climate change. West Indies and the hurricanes that come through, tropical storms are obviously becoming much, much more powerful. That does huge damage to infrastructure. And so when you go out on tour, it tends to be quite a good time of year for tourists and for people to enjoy the cricket. And you can forget about the fact that you're arriving a few weeks sometimes after really, really difficult economic stress. And then, of course, there's Bangladesh with sea level rises, South southern india which is one of the three most exposed areas to global warming pakistan likewise and then then sri lanka so some of those big test playing countries which provides a huge amount of grassroots levels cricket and support i think the cricket community probably needs to think about how do we how do we support groups and peoples and clubs and cricket in in countries that are going to have more and more difficult times and you know probably it's 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 a question that should be talked about, why Aramco is sponsoring the new World Cup. And, you know, that's above my pay grade. But it's a Saudi oil company. The, the right? biggest oil company in the world uh, produced about $200 billion of profit last year. And some of that is funneling Saudi interest in sports generally. And you, you can beat nature if you invest in technology. But um, that doesn't tend to come down to, you know... Grassroots Saturday, Sunday games. So when it gets warmer and hotter, you know one of the things that club cricketers or below club cricketers, whatever level we'd be at, you know, it's there's no guidance about what level of cricket is safe for temperatures. There's no medical guidance about what you should do if there's dehydration. None of us are equipped for medical incidents. You know, like I mean, we wear helmets. that's that deals with some of the head stuff. But under what conditions is humidity an issue? How often should you stop for drinks? What time of day should you start? I think that that climate. Issue is a really important one, and um, you know, this is your world rather than mine, but it doesn't look or sound like there's a lot of thinking going on around there. A lot is how do you monetize? And you know, if, if the world doesn't go through global warming and climate change like 99% of science says that it will, then you know, maybe you don't have to worry about it. But um, if, if, if you've got it wrong and that is how things are going to change, then probably you should be investing and thinking about it now. So I suppose
1: partly in a way because it, it, it's a cricketing problem. because a lot of the, the games, the matches or the, the popularity of the game is, is in quite
3: exposed places, as you, as you mentioned. Well, you know, I, I, did, I was very lucky this year to do the speech to launch this year's Wisdom. And one of the great things about writing books that people have read is that you get asked for these amazing things that you know, I immediately stood up and thought one day when I was growing up as a boy I thought one day maybe i will get round of applause in the long room at Lord's and as I got older and older I realised it wouldn't be for my batting or my bowling or my fielding but you know, being asked to do something like that and to talk about some of the issues around climate its it's not just global warming it's around things like air quality and a lot of cricket is played in places that are Quite difficult, quite dangerous for like Delhi, for instance, yeah, where, where the air quality is, is, is measurable in what impact that has on on life expectancy, and probably you'd want either the authorities or the PCA, who I've, who I've spoken to after after my talk at Lords, around what should players be doing to think about what, what is in their interests. You know. When should players say, "I'm not taking to the field in these conditions of either atmospheric pollution or heat or humidity or wet bulb stuff"? And we we know that your cognitive abilities diminish in heat. We know that your heartbeat increases when it when, when it gets hotter and hotter. And those 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 rates are, are very substantial, very with small incremental change. And and probably what you would want to know is that those discussions are ongoing, and being reviewed all the time. And you know, my, my guess is that none of that is really happening. If and when it does happen, it'll be about top level big money sport IPL but you know what happens to your Sunday games outside a pub where you normally play in August and maybe we should maybe cricket's going to become a spring and a winter game in some parts of the world. Interesting it's obviously been something that you've thought about in
1: your main role as professor of global history at Oxford um, your great success publicly is with the book The Silk Road does cricket appear in The Silk Road I haven't reached the point where it does does it? Does it crop uh, you, up at any
3: point? You, you, you might, I, I'd like to be, get you to read it again, just in case. But no, it's not there. But is in the Earth transformed because, like I said, it's cricket is the is the single most is the ball sport most exposed to climate change, and um, so cricket's not in the Silk Roads. But you know what I find interesting is is that things like cricket were played in Aleppo four hundred, nearly three hundred, well more than three hundred years ago, and that legacy of cricket. I mean, in fact, you said it when we spoke last night. The British Empire spread cricket around the world and now it's a new empire that's doing that It's Indian diasporas or South Asian diasporas that are getting these cricket clubs in in LA or here we come to Corfu and it's fantastic to see Greek-speaking cricketers who are just fantastically good eyes um, who are encouraging local cricketers to play and um, lots of them have have been as you can see how they play today um, been playing since they were kids but so Silk Rose is not really the mechanism to talk about that um, but that, that was really a book about how other things in the world matter to, um, you know, no one's heard of the Battle of Hastings. It means nothing to anybody in most of the world or Henry VIII and his wives. Um, so Silkworth was trying to say there are, we should think about all these different communities in different parts of the world and see what matters to them.
1: And I suppose this is why you love cricket and you love coming to Corfu because it's a great interaction of cultures, isn't it?
3: Well, I could do, honestly, I could do hours without, stop, without drawing breath about Corfu. I mean, it's such an important and interesting island for Greek culture, Roman Empire, the Normans were here. Uh, it has a strategically important role. The British came here and looked after it for a while. And, you know, all those things that blend together, it's, it's a sign of how you can learn and adapt. And what, what happened when Corfu got, was brought here 200 years ago by the Brits was it, it, was, it was adopted by two local neighbourhoods who then had great rivalries between each other. And it's a wonderful thing to see how people enjoy games and sport rather than always talking about uh, politics and economics. You know, how you play with each other and, and the spirit in which you play. In fact, we have just had a very, very tight last over, not without its own controversies. There's going to be a lot of DRS back at the hotel this evening to talk about runouts and boundaries and whether people touch the rope and so on. But you know, it's so important how you play the game and how you conduct yourself.
1: And it really encapsulated beautifully by, by today. It's great to see. Well done for uh, keeping this, uh, this tradition going, actually. And uh, I just love the link between literary and history and,
3: and cricket. It's brilliant. The bad news, Simon, is that we've now got hooks into you. So we don't let go easy. If we find people who can actually play cricket, we will rope you in and, you know, you've written... You, you're a cricketer, you love the cricket, you do so much to promote cricket, you're, you're, you're our kind of ideal to come and play. And when you said you're a bit crocked and your back hurts and you don't really want to do it, that, that, our eyes lit up because that, that, that means you're going to bring our standard up a bit.
1: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll play next year for sure. Anyway, right. uh, it, it, looks, uh, it looks enticing. Um, so hopefully, you know, fingers crossed and muscles crossed, uh, I'll be here
3: sports social podcast network
2: with the lucky land slots you can get lucky
3: just about anywhere